You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santa's Health. Hello, listeners. My name is Patrick Nelson, and I am a principal here at Santa's Health. Today, I am joined by CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Donna Duncan, to discuss long-term care in Ontario. It's been a tough six months for seniors living in long-term care and for those working in homes across the province. In our discussion today, we'll try to understand what went wrong, what went right, and to talk about how we can plan and prepare for the future. Before we dive into this conversation, I want to introduce our guest. Donna Duncan is the CEO of the largest long-term care association in the country, representing not-for-profit, municipal, and private homes in Ontario. I have known Donna for decades, and I can tell you firsthand that her passion is public service. She has a storied career in government, in mental health and addictions, and of course now in the long-term care sector. Donna has served as the interim CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, and from 2010 to 2017 served as the president and CEO of the Hinks Delcrest Centre, a large children's mental health treatment research and teaching centre. I had the privilege of working with and learning from Donna at Hinks Delcrest. Thank you for joining me today, Donna. Oh, thank you, Patrick. I'm pleased to join you. So let's start by going back to a year ago or so when you took on this new job. Uh, I, I asked sort of jokingly, but, um, but also with great interest, is it everything you expected it would be? Uh, and more. Uh, I, I don't think I uh, had any, any of us had any inkling about what, what the January and February would bring and, and certainly what's transpired over the last few months. Uh, you know, I think certainly when I came on, my mandate from the board was to realign the organization and uh, position it to drive needed sector change. Uh, little did I know that uh, as we worked over the summer months to build out a, a plan uh, to guide us, that uh, the changes we were starting to propose through the work of our various committees and new task forces would actually um, have us in a position to uh, inform exponential change in very short order. No kidding. And you, I mean, maybe if I think back now, uh, there was also a new government kind of just before I, I suppose you were appointed. Where, so put COVID aside for a minute, where, do you, where were things going with the new government? You know, we had a, a, the new government come in with a, a commitment to building new long-term care beds and, and really a focus on the beds. Uh, and then uh, as the, the mandate proceeded with, with the Ford government, they wanted to demonstrate that long-term care was a priority. So in the summer months, uh, we saw the emergence of a new standalone separate ministry of long-term care that uh, was only just finding its legs. So new, new ADMs coming in in December and actually a new ADM is only just uh, an additional ADM has just been built out. So we were going into uh, COVID uh, with a nascent ministry that was evolving in real time just as we, we needed stabilization and, and preparedness as we move forward. So there was that disruption uh, as we separated from the Ministry of Health and, and it created both, I would say, uh, opportunities, uh, certainly a focus and some, some clear leadership uh, to represent the sector at the cabinet table, but also so, some real challenges as uh, the ministry was organizing its own business. And what, I mean, how has that, um, 
I mean, it's it's hard to avoid getting into you know the obvious conversation uh, for too long. But when you think about the work that you were doing with government uh, pre-COVID and how that changed kind of as COVID happened, can you speak to that a little bit about maybe how the priorities have changed? You know, it, that's an interesting question because um, the work that we were doing with our members and, and we engaged a lot of uh, member activities uh, over the, the last year leading into to the new year with a capital redevelopment task force, a red tape task force, uh, as well as an HR emergency task force. And the proposals that we put on the table for our pre-budget submission to inform the, the budget considerations of the provincial government for the, the 2020 budget uh, actually held firm uh, through even through the pandemic. The issues that we'd identified around an HR crisis um, are the state of our capital, our, our buildings with those three and four bedrooms that hadn't been renewed uh, since the 70s, uh, our financial model, the fact that uh, we were restricted to these very narrow and highly prescribed funding envelopes that really weren't built around the people we needed to serve and didn't allow us to support the staffing models that we actually need for a far more complex resident population. So those, those pieces were foundational. And, and even in our pre-budget submission, we were very clear. We were facing a perfect storm at the best of times. Uh, so mm -hmm. I would say that the planning work and the policy work and the data work, we, we invest a lot in data analysis and mapping. Those elements have, have really supported the early advocacy early in the pandemic, including uh, having OLTCA take the lead in driving to get emergency orders in place. Yeah, I'm, you know what, I'm glad you raised that because there's a, you know, there's been a lot of focus on kind of what went wrong in long-term care. You know, there, a lot also went right. So maybe we can start with kind of the, maybe you can broaden for us a little bit all the things that you think went went well, and, and that's probably not a popular topic, but I think it's important to note. I, I think it is an important topic. Uh, and I think we have to recognize that long-term care does not exist in a vacuum in Ontario. And, you know, certainly leading into this, we were quite siloed. Even when we were in the Ministry of Health, we were very siloed and we weren't understood. I would argue that things that were good that came out of this uh, include a better understanding of who we serve in long-term care, a better understanding of our challenges, uh, certainly new relationships with uh, the healthcare system, hospitals, uh, primary care, public health, uh, certainly an understanding of the HR pressures that no one quite get, grasped before. But notwithstanding the fact that there's a better understanding of our challenges. The fact that the majority of homes had no outbreaks, that 80% of the homes um, were, had, had no losses, uh, and where we experienced tragic, tragic loss. There was an unfortunate uh, perfect storm, another perf perfect storm of, of a number of different conditions that, that fed into it. Certainly, I would say where we saw 
we saw communities coming together and wrapping around long-term care. Uh, we saw certainly even where there were losses in homes, we saw communities stepping up, community colleges stepping up to help, uh, local businesses coming to the fore to bring food in and support people. I would say that we certainly saw leadership in our se sector emerge. Uh, you know, a number of our, our larger members partnered together to put uh, investments into securing PPE. We know that there was a PPE sh shortage when this started mm -hmm. and our, uh, our members secured PPE uh, both for themselves, but for smaller, smaller operators uh, who maybe didn't have the wherewithal to do their own procurement because we were left on our own for a very long time uh, before government stepped up. So that kind of leadership and initiative is something we can't lose. The fact that we can take control over things, I, I don't know that that's something we'd ever been empowered to do before, but circumstances actually forced that. We also yeah. had, had a number of our members who our larger members who established a fund, uh, a, a, a charitable fund that would support uh, workers in distress uh, who were having financial difficulties. Like, those are good things. That's leadership. Uh, and we don't hear about those enough. We don't yeah. celebrate those enough. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? The, just the, the focus on sort of the things that went wrong, but what gets lost in that are, are you know, the nurses, the PSWs, the administrators, uh, and others that were, you know, working and doing anything and everything they could, um, uh, you know, working extra time, double time, weekends. So, you know, despite what, you know, we read, um, and maybe if I sort of outline, there's, there's been a lot of figure, finger pointing happening, uh, more so in the, in, you know, as things have, uh, have softened up a little bit in long-term care. The, uh, some unions are running some pretty, uh, uh, some pretty nasty ads on TVs, on TV blaming uh, private operators. You know, the NDP at Queen's Park is blaming uh, the current government for, uh, you know, not doing this and not doing that. The Premier is, uh, you know, when, when he answers questions about what went wrong, he, is, he seems to be pointing more at kind of the, the last two decades and you know, systemic problems in, in, in long-term care that haven't been addressed by governments of the past of all stripes. Um, you know, it, it's a tough question to answer, I realize, but who do you, is there anybody you think that's getting off easy in the conversation? Is there anything, is there one thing or t a few things that you would point at as, as far as the things that went wrong? You know, I think, you know, as we look at what went wrong and, and where the conditions were, so many of them were out of our control. And we're all looking for a villain in this. And what really concerns us is the villain is COVID-19. It is a, an invisible shape-shifting monster that we certainly know more about today than we did in February or March. And, and it continues to evolve. But in the, the quest for a more tangible villain. There are those who are looking um, through their ideological lens uh, to, to tar somebody in this. And that's unfortunate because if you think the premier phrase, you know, referred to this, this is a battle, we're at war, then in wartime, we should be unifying and coming together in a sense of common purpose. And what was really disturbing, quite honestly, is that there were those who were looking for 
the opportunity to advance a, a political agenda when our focus needed to be on how do we actually build up the sector, not tear it down. So where were our labor partners? Uh, we were very clear as an association in our advocacy and in our media work that labor needed to be a partner with us to make sure that we got people back to work. Mm -hmm. uh, this shouldn't have been about legal processes. This needed to be about how do we work towards solutions, appreciating that what we were seeing coming into Ontario mapped largely against what we'd seen um, course through Europe, through Italy, Spain, and France, and the UK, certainly in the United States. You know, the fact that uh, the beginning of this was so focused on hospitals, mm -hmm. uh, decanting hospitals, making sure hospitals had capacity. Uh, there were no discussions about what what the protocols were going to be for long-term care, notwithstanding the fact that when we were having those discussions, my partners in Europe uh, were certainly telling us that uh, the losses, the tragic losses that we were seeing in those European countries were because of the prioritization of hospitals at the expense of care homes, at the expense of seniors, and most especially the, at the expense of people over the age of 80. And it was very clear early on that they were the most vulnerable to this. We were lucky that we didn't have uh, social spread and we didn't need that hospital capacity but we were not prepared for what happened in long-term care. And I think that's a collective responsibility. This cannot be on the long-term care homes and operators. Uh, the government has a responsibility. The hospitals have a responsibility. Uh, our labor partners bear responsibility. Uh, this, is, this was our collective duty. Yeah, it's, uh, there's no doubt. You know, my, my thesis has been, and. Um, you know, in really simple terms that the, uh, you know, public health was a little bit behind in their protocols and directives around uh, the use of PPE in long-term care homes and uh, the system, the system's capacity to do testing early uh, was way behind. And if you look at the, you know, the data in long-term care, it seems clear to me that the homes that were hit first uh, were hit the hardest, and largely those homes were hit before we were doing broad-based testing and before public health was mandating uh, uh, the use of PPE across homes. And the, the big miss was asymptomatic transmission. Do you, is that, you know, I'm, I'm being really simple, but is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I, I would say yes. Uh, timing was important. Uh, timing, uh, location, were you in a hot spot? Um, if you were early on, then we didn't know about asymptomatic spread. The, the fact was, early on, we had a shortage of PPE. The government was controlling the stock and the supply of personal protective equipment. There was a shortage of swabs. And those shortages, uh, I believe, uh, contributed to the delay in those important protocols. I would also say part of the challenge was the inconsistency of the interpretation of, of the guidelines and the fact that the guidance uh, was changing regularly, if not daily, and oftentimes at midnight uh, on a Friday night. And mm -hmm. um, so that the, the communication in this uh, consistent, clear uh, communication across the province, across uh, LINs or, or uh, health regions um, really was problematic for us. And, uh, it, you know, I think where, 
where the association really stepped up and where we're really grateful to our board and our members. We, we were having daily calls in many cases or weekly calls and our, our board members were serving as partners and resources and offering uh, operational guidance on the ground uh, through this. Um, but I would say the root causes from our data analysis, it's not ownership, it was the when was your breakout uh, what kind of building were you in? It and, it, and it was all of the collection of the things together. It was the timing. It was the, the class of the building. If you had three and four bedrooms, what your HR situation was like, um, whether or not you were in a geographic hotspot, th those were fundamental to this. Yeah. We've, yeah, you're, you're bang on, I think. You know, what we've seen, I think, once the right protocols and, and uh, directives have been in place, uh, uh, and and some time has passed. I think what we've seen is that largely long-term care is is now managing uh, uh, COVID-19 really really well. So the commission was announced uh, a month ago or so uh, recently. Have you heard much about uh, what's to come? And what do you think is uh, uh, you know what will you be looking for uh, when the commission uh, does their work and puts forward their report? So we're, you know, the commission is still organizing its business. Um, we're looking forward to connecting with them. Uh, we do know that they're going to reach out to the association and um, we're looking forward to better understanding how they're going to organize their business. Uh, we know that their report is due uh, next spring. Uh, certainly what we're going to be looking for and, and where we were pleased with the terms of reference is that uh, it's not long-term care in, in a vacuum. Uh, and we, we want to make sure that those contextual pieces are considered, including the global and national context, uh, including some of the historical elements uh, of our structural and systemic challenges, uh, but also a recognition that uh, out of 626 homes in the province, there were perhaps about 30 that ended in, in what the, they classified as the red zone. Uh, and, you know, as a very small minority where unfortunately we, we did see those tragic losses, but the majority of the system held. And, uh, you know, that's a real tribute and testimony uh, to the efforts of the front line. And as you've said, Patrick, everybody stepped up and did whatever it takes. Uh, and, and again, some, some really tough conditions. And those people, those individuals, those front lines, you know, including, and especially those in those hardest hit homes, that was traumatic. And, you know, I think it's gonna be important that we validate those efforts, validate those, uh, the conditions that fed into this uh, and, and make sure that as we move along, though, that it's just not about navel gazing about what 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 we've been through, because mm -hmm. that we are at the end of the beginning. We are not at the end of the pandemic, and we have a lot of work to do as we move towards the fall. We're already seeing outbreaks um, uh, in uh, different. Uh, urban centers, uh, and we've got to make sure that we're prepared to meet that on and that we don't fail our residents and we don't fail our families and we don't fail our staff. Um, you know, we're all in this together and we have to hold the government accountable for making sure that they do what they say they do. You know, Premier Ford and the Prime Minister both said we're going to do whatever it takes to fix it. Well, we need to start fixing it in real time. And I think that's our concern about the commission. 
that it's a distraction from what we need to be doing today as we move through the fall flu season and a potential uh, second wave. Yeah, some have, uh, it's funny, it's, it's not funny, but some have said to me recently that, uh, you know, long-term care uh, uh, is stuck on the sidelines or, uh, you know, hidden away and nobody talks about it, government doesn't invest in it up until something terrible happens and then everybody runs to, uh, to, to fund long-term care. And it's exactly why we're in the state that we're in uh, today and have been for two, two decades is because uh, there hasn't been a crisis in long-term care. Is there any truth to that, Donna, that uh, you know, governments sort of uh, put it, keep it on the sidelines, they focus on hospitals and so on until, and now we're, now we're seeing everybody run to the table to say, oh yeah, we, now we need to fund uh, long-term care. Is there some truth to that? It's an interesting observation. I, I've certainly, coming out of the mental health sector um, and coming into long-term care, I, I feel a lot of parallels where the government sees the system solutions as being too complicated. Uh, there's stigma. Uh, we tend to accept things because we don't want to talk, the, you know, people don't want to talk about these issues. Um, and so... Uh, it's like you're not on the radar screen. You're not going to be a ballot question at the polls. And so government's not inclined to, to focus in that area. You know, we're concerned that we had a, a, an abundance of focus over the last number of months, largely on, on not pleasant things and on darkness, not a celebration of what went right, not a celebration of our frontline heroes, mm -hmm. um, but certainly a focus on 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 in a way that drove fear about the sector uh, where the fixing it was going to be uh, somebody else's problem. We need to fix this together. We're very worried that as government prepares for, for, for back to school, schools become the focus and we're not talking about long-term care. Is it, you, you raised uh, two more questions because I'm mindful of time, but you know, just briefly, the, the three and four bed ward challenge is it realistic to believe that government's going to be able to pull out, you know, the, the thousands of beds that would come as a result of, of mandating only uh, private and semi-private rooms? It's a difficult decision for government to make. I, I you know, certainly, you know, from, from working around politics and media, there is a, a sense that um, there were a root cause. Uh, certainly, as, as we noted, um, there were a root cause combined with other confluence of conditions. So mm -hmm. it wasn't uniquely three and four bedrooms. There are a lot of homes in the province with three and four bedrooms who had no outbreaks. And uh, so what, what worked there and how do we make sure we've got those conditions? We don't believe it's, it's realistic for the government to um, open up the rooms without ensuring the other pieces are in place that we need as part of a, a wave two response. So additional staff, in-house infection prevention and control expertise and specialization, uh, a, a mechanism whereby we can ensure we're going to have physicians come regularly on site uh, to to uh, provide some other additional uh, clinical support in the homes on a on a go forward basis. The, these pieces are important, but if we take out the the reduce the occupancy on a go forward basis, that's about forty five hundred beds. Mm -hmm. That's huge capacity. We know that. Uh, you know, right now across the province, I know certainly from listening to our members, we do have hospitals and uh, regional health uh, groups really, really 
pushing aggressively on the homes to expand their occupancy. So, and we also recognize that with occupancy, um, you comes comes an additional copay that allows for the management of the homes and the operations of the homes. If the government's not going to allow us to fill those beds on a go forward basis, then there's going to have to be some financial offsets as well. So where do you find the space to deal with the alternate level of care patients from hospitals, uh, but also how do we make sure we have a financially viable sector, especially those smaller homes where they have uh, are largely comprised of of the ward rooms. Yeah, it's a challenge, no doubt. Yeah. Maybe as my as my last question in our last couple minutes here, uh, I know the OLTCA has put forward an impressive um, uh, plan to government uh, just on 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 how to prepare and plan for Wave Two. You know, let's pretend you've got uh, the Premier and uh, the Minister of Health and the Minister of Long Term Care uh, seated in front of you, or they're listening. You know, what are the two or three things that are more important than the other um, eight or nine things? Uh, I.e., I, where should they where should they prioritize their uh, their actions in the next month and a half? Our, our number one issue is staffing, and we've certainly learned. Uh, both from our members, uh, uh, their experiences with their frontline, but also in trying to recruit and support our members in recruiting staff throughout the pandemic uh, through the creation of our, our link to LTC job matching platform. We spent a lot of time doing webinars trying to support uh, the attraction of people into the sector. And we heard very clearly, it's not just about money and notwithstanding the pandemic pay is over now, it's not just about money. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, yes, people want to be compensated, but they want to know that they're safe. They want to know that they're going to be supported and that the environment's going to be safe so that they can provide the care they need to their residents. So in order to ensure that we've got the people that we need, we do need those pieces from, from wave one on, especially around testing, uh, testing and PPE profoundly important. And we would prioritize that infection prevention and control expertise in the home. It's not enough just for hospitals uh, to uh, provide that support in the homes. We need to own it, especially with visitors uh, and families coming in and the homes being open. Um, the more that we can ensure that uh, we're doing ongoing supervision and training for donning and doffing and appropriate use of PPE, that's going to be really important for us. We would prioritize some sort of mechanism that would provide uh, an incentive for the physicians to be on site more so that you do have that additional medical support. Our, our, not only are our staff traumatized and frail and, and trepidatious about what's to come in the fall with flu season and a potential second wave, yeah. uh, we know that our residents are, are really frail too, frailer because, because of the fact that they haven't been as mobile and had visitors. So that's what we would really focus on. And, and then uh, what's the mechanisms to get more people in as staff? Can we use these new uh, resident support aids and continue with those through the emergency order uh, to provide a pathway to PSWs where we can grow a PSW workforce in the short term as quickly as possible? But HR really is critical. And uh, if we don't have people, uh, then we're not going to be able to care for people. Yeah, it's, uh, you know what, there's, um, there's no doubt, and I feel like it's something that everybody could unite around, just about acknowledging 
the the great work that uh, uh, the nurses, the PSWs, the dietitians, and and everybody else have been doing in long-term care, and in doing so, you know, um, expressing how rewarding a career in long-term care can be. And you know, on on that note, Donna, as we wrap up here, I, I just want to thank you for your leadership over the last six months, in particular. It's been been a trying time, and there's been uh, so many things been thrown at you and everybody else working in long-term care. So thank you. In in some may, in some ways, I think we'll look back and say that you were the the right leader for the right time. Uh, so we wish you well, and we hope uh, we hope you'll come back. And uh, uh, thank you as always for for the work that you do and for uh, for participating in this conversation. Well, thank you, Patrick. You're very generous. It's uh, great to share this with you. And, and thank you to you and your team. I know that uh, you really supported the front lines and you were there in those most difficult situations. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a great, you've, you've been a great partner. So thank you. Thanks, Donna. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santis Health.